hell is ADD? My friends say I should act my age. What's my age again? What's my age again? Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Indie Comic Spotlight. Tony's ADHD cast edition, where today, I'm instead of focusing just on indie comics, we're going to focus on that intersection that I love of comic books and art and movies and all the things that I do every Thursday on the Comics and Motion Network. And today, I'm joined by Pulitzer, Pulitzer we discussed this off air, Pulitzer Prize winner, <laughs> Walt Hickey, Walter, but he said I can call him Walt Hickey, <laughs> whose new book, as the time we're recording this, is way in the past, and the time this comes out, when the book comes out, it's called You Are <laughs> What You Watch, is out. Walt, how are you? Thank you so much for having me, Tony. I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you. <laughs> I am so excited. So I'm going to tell everybody how this works. So my, um, as a former smoker, uh, I replace smoking with this thing called net galley. And that is my favorite drug where I go into NetGalley and they're like, <laughs> here are free books. And I see this book. It's called You Are What You Watch, How Movies and TVs Affect Everything. Now, two things are, are, appealed to me. One, the cover just looks like the inside of my brain. So I love that. And two, <laughs> you wrote the word effect instead of impact. And as an English teacher who is frustrated at the overuse of the word impact because people don't know to say effect or effect and it is turned into impact i appreciated that so <laughs> thank you the I, I mean thank you for noticing yeah i mean i think that we overuse the word impact a little bit and and i just you know i really do you know i lay out the case in the book that this stuff really just does affect everything it, it, it affects how we live it affects how we how we the society that we inhabit it affects the world as a whole uh but yeah i'm delighted to, to kind of uh talk about it with y'all uh today this, but this yeah, is gonna no, be great you I'm, dug the book. I'm so excited oh man i read it and like i got it you know in that galley it's digital i can't wait to get my paws on the physical copy but you get it and um and, you know, you're just like going through it and with NetGalley books because, you know, I read mostly comic books digitally. I don't I mean, I do read digital books, but for the most part, I either listen to audiobooks or read book books just because, you know, it's just more fun yeah. that way. But, you know, NetGalley's digital books, whatever. So I sat down one day to start reading it. And then it was like three hours later. And as somebody with ADHD, my hyper focus is reading. So, you know, if you lose all track of time and place and you only realize you're getting up is because you're starving. That's the book for you. So that's <laughs> what happened with this. I read it in two settings. And wow, I didn't fully process it all. Oh, I but you know, I had to read it a second. I had to go back in because I just couldn't stop. <laughs> and I was like, there were some factoids. So like my comics in motion, the guys in the comics, guys and gals in the comics motion network, we have our own private discord. So I'd be like sending up facts. I'm like, did you know this? Did you know this? And so like, we're, people are, we're having these ongoing conversations about your book. They didn't even know what it was. And I was like, and then somebody was like, what is this? What, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm reading this book. Um, so it started some really excellent conversations that Batman is working hard. That was a really yeah. long ongoing conversation because we're all, you know, comics in motion. We're yeah. So anyway, so we're going to talk about how the impetus for this and what you do and, and the numlock stuff. We're going to talk about all that good stuff, but let's go back in time because it, it is still in, it's part of indie comic spotlight. You are obviously like comic books. <laughs> Nobody in a million years writes this book this way unless they know something. Nobody would be like, what are these comic books? I mean, your your breakdown of all the spider villains was pretty spectacular. <laughs> so you really love superheroes and you love comic books. So let's get back in time. Young Walt Hickey. What's your comic book origin story? What's the first one you bought? Who's your favorite hero? Do you yeah. still read them? Tell us. Let's hear it. The, such a good question. Um, so... 
I, you know, I was always a big fan of comics. I, you know, would always read the funny papers when I was a kid. Uh, I really obviously, you know, so much of the cartooning kind of comes from that. And, and I really came to enjoy that. I would say, you know, I really fell in love with comics in high school and college. Um, I got really into Neil Gaiman at a time and obviously, uh, Gaiman wrote Sandman and that was just such like, like every, and I think even to this day, everything that I read kind of has to stand up to that. That was just such an influential book on my life. Um, and, and I mean, having you read the book, I'm sure that you can kind of, you know, the idea that, that, you know, the things that we dream and the things that we, that we believe like really do have an impact on us. That has always been very important to me. Yeah. So I would, I would definitely put Sandman as kind of like the, the transformative moment where I totally fell in love with this as a medium. Um, I then read, uh, Mike Carey's Lucifer, which was a spinoff from that. And then I got into Marvel a little after that because i was like well what is a what is marvel's closest to this basically like this kind of high concept oh. thing and i read and i read um it was the kieran gillen run on journey into mystery about loki uh where basically that book went from being a thor book to being a loki book uh for a number of years and i had read online that this was like you know one of the closer things to uh, like sandman is conceptually of like you know a guy who's Inter- having a conversation with ideas and kind of what it means. Well, to that's what Dylan like that. does. Everything he does is that. Yeah. 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 For sure. I mean, totally a Rosetta Stone for him. Totally. And uh, so I read that and I, that's how I fell in with the Marvel universe, which I have since had a long, fantastic relationship with since um, my favorite superhero is Hawkeye. Uh, I love Hawkeye the most. I think that there's like, you know, the Matt Fraction, David Aha run was oh. really, really uh, phenomenal, but Practically like just totally perfect in every character. way. I mean, pizza yep. dog, the pizza dog, the silent episode, yep. the courage to be like, hey, yeah. here's what we're doing. Yeah, I had a book. Ugh. It just such a like that was like, again, I have a, pa- a page of that framed on my wall. Just like nice. there's so much in there about what it means to like what it means to be in a world where there's a lot of people who are innately talented and potentially better with you than you and how, you know, not to feel jealousy, but also to like carve out a place for yourself in that through, you know, tenacity, hard work, and, and, and just kind of like, you know, these two very interesting, similarly broken people in Kate Bishop and in Hawkeye. So I, I can talk about Hawkeye all day, but I will not do that. Um, we can, I mean, he is awesome. And I, it's funny. It's, um, so my favorite superhero is Tim Drake for all the reasons, except yeah. he's not broken. You know what I mean? He he's 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 the only Robin who chose to be Robin. But it's also like that's what what I because you know as a young boy because I'm born in '73. So like yeah. Tim Drake is he and I are like the same age when he first came around. You know we're close in age, and it's like I could be like he's the first Robin yeah. who made me feel like I could be Robin. And so yeah. Tim, so it's all that you say, but again he's. He's not broken in the same way that that um, Clint is, but I love that that take on him. You're right. That is because it's like it's aspirational. Like we can't yeah. be Clark Kent. We could be Clark Kent, but we can never be Superman. Right. And like you'll go through the world and you'll see people being like, how the hell can I compete with that? And I think that the thing that I love the most about Hawkeye is that it it, it, it tells you you don't need to. Like working hard is good enough. You can ha- like, and like you will develop things on your own that like they will come to admire in their and, and like you don't have to like compare yourself to like gods and 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 technologists and 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 you know Captain America. You can just kind of allow yourself to be inspired by them. And, and I always thought that that was a very powerful, lovely message. You know, I I like that a lot. I think that's great. And that and people, if you've not read, I mean, that is the closest thing to an indie book in a superhero form. Yeah. Um, over there. I mean, although Cullen Bunn's Deadpool kills the Marvel universe is pretty, <laughs> pretty righteous as well. I love that. Did you ever read that? 
yeah that's uh, a lot I, of fun yeah I, if you can't tell i do dig the stuff that the big two do that are very independent in like vibe and nature where yeah. they kind of give folks a little bit of a longer leash you know you, you know there's always one or two runs going out at a given time uh, about that it can be you know the fraction iron fist or or the moon knight run or, or any of that kind of stuff like i i really do enjoy those um and, and you know you get your favorites so yeah but that's yeah. my comic journey yeah. i would say yeah right yeah no when there's that moon knight run the um the one that you're talking about where where he's in the in, where he's in the institution and it's the it was the um it was like told there like six different artists who yeah. did it yeah yeah that's a good one that's actually there's a book coming out um sometime this year about uh, about moon knight and i wrote an essay for it and that's the, oh. that's the run i focused on because i love the idea of of the of did being his power like it's not yeah. just that he has it it's that it's also part of what makes him you know, powerful and like the de- the demystifying of the mental illness. And as opposed to like, if you're mentally ill, then you must be a psychopath or you must be a killer. And he's like, he's got mental illness, but it's this here. It's what gives him his power. I love that. Yeah. It's so that's a good one. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And then again, like, I know that, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about the big two for an indie yeah. podcast, but um, I love uh, independent comics. I got into those, I think, at a, at, in a place of a little bit of dissatisfaction with, with the big two, as I think a lot of people do. And I just like, you know, there's just such a brilliant world out there, particularly web comics. And um, I'm... I'm personally interested in LGBT comics and there's a very like, you know, for a while that stuff just wasn't produced by, you know, large corporations. And so as a result, uh, you, you've really been able to feast on the indie scene from that front. But yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the space. (laughs) Yeah, no. And it's, and that's the cool thing. It's like, even it's almost like the big four, right? Like dark horse and Mm -hmm. and image are really, you know, they're, they're not really indie anymore, but when you see what they're doing, you see what like Brubaker and Phillips are doing over at image or you see what like, yeah, you know, Walt Fraction and and um, Kelly Sue. You know, they went. They they were at Image, and then they moved over into what's that? I'll think of it. Where you like pay for the subscription, and I know there's. Oh still, yeah. You know, you know, and they're so it's like they're taking it back. But I love what they're doing over there. I still think um, the Image spinoff Top Cow, Mark yeah. Silvestri's Top Cow. There's still some amazing stuff. Brian Edward Hills, Postal is one of the best comics I've ever read. And so yeah, yeah. there's all these. But that so it's like even inside these indies, they they. They can break it down even more. Yep. Yeah. Well, and what I do appreciate, and I hear what you're saying, and I do think like, um, you know, the 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 indie comics are the ones that that make the the big two have to catch up, right? They're yeah. like, oh, like when you look historically, you talked about LGBTQ plus characters that was never even a thing in a lot of indie comics, and then the big two are like, oh, we better straighten up, you know. To, ironically yeah. and be like okay and you know it's so like now tim drake is by and i mean a lot of people were like that broke the internet and you're like calm down that yeah. actually makes perfect sense also calm down <laughs> you look at you look at a joint like marvel too and again not to keep coming back to kieran gillen yeah, but i just love the guy's work oh. but the, the young avengers is such a like there's before and then there's after which is just it seems like that fundamentally changed views about how commercially successful a book that really involved the surfeit of, of LGBT characters could do yeah, of course. at a yeah. place like that. And and it's really just, I mean, you know, you can look at how Marvel treated the stuff in the early 2000s even um, and, and not feel great about it. But then like kind of since then, there's really, they realized that this is, you know, and you got to imagine that they view it as a like quote unquote addressable market. But like, sure. I don't know, I, I, yeah, as a person who enjoys that, I, I'm, you know, I'm happy. <laughs> no, but, yeah. I am too. I think that's really important. And I think Kieran Gillen's um, Die, have you read Die? Love Die. That is like, 
what I love, and it's just so subtle, is that, you know, like for people who haven't read Die, again, we're here to talk about Walt's book, but we're going to talk about this is that we love Kieran Gillen podcast because yeah. he's amazing, right? He invented yeah. Dr. Afra in the yeah. Star Wars comics. I mean, he's a, he's a freaking genius. And I love her talk <laughs> about like the queer queen of the Star Wars universe. I love that character. I hope we see her in live action one day. Yeah. Um, God, she's such a great character. And anyway, but in Die, my favorite thing is just like, you don't really real like in the game that he's transgender, like the, the yeah. main guy out in the world who's like a dude, he's a woman in the game and nobody, like all of his friends just kind of know like that's where he can live his truth. It's such a brilliant book. And then the Bronte sister, then the whole glass town game is brought up. It's like, yeah, brilliant book. It's a brilliant piece. And I was like, did Kieran Gillen just write this for me? Did he just say like, here's a bunch of stuff you like. And I'm going to write, and I didn't, so it's happy to know somebody else yep. read it. Because it's, I, it, it was brilliant. Again, not to make this into a Kieran Gillen podcast, we please, can. buddy. You are, you yeah. are what you watch by Walt Hickey coming on October. Back to Kieran right. Gillen. Right. Um, so I, uh, the the Wicked and the Divine, I I pulled every copy of that. Like, I, it's it's the one, like, you know, I don't do a lot of pull the floppies all the time because that gets very expensive. But that was a book I I bought every. Uh, like, I covered like, it on this show a couple of years yep. back. Well, Link, yep. Faye and I talked about Wicked and the Divine because. Terrific. She, yeah, she was like a Faye. Faye is a she's a British friend of mine and she really like the whole idea of the of the mythology behind it and the reality of it and what's real and what's not real and she told me so good she she turned me on to it she was like oh you should be reading this and I was like oh man I should be reading this so yeah we've covered it before and it is it's a gorgeous book and he's amazing by the way everybody that ends the Kieran Gillen part of the show (laughs) we love Kieran and he and honestly I mean like when you think about who's swinging for the fences James the fourth Kieran Gillen, you like these, you know, uh, Mariko, um, you know, you've got these amazing writers and characters and they're doing the stuff that needs to be done. And they're, they're advocating for everyone. And this is, watch me, I'm going to totally tie it together to your book. So, because <laughs> here's the thing, like you, you're the concept of what your book is, you are what you watch is in the, like chapter one is called how culture affects your bodies. And it's this idea of, and you, you focus on the movies, which I get, but there is this thing about like internal joy that comes from art. And as a kid who was kind of a, you know, just a introverted loner who spent a lot of time. I mean, I'm, I've got an older sister and everything, but I wasn't like the other kids, you know, I just wanted yeah. to be left alone and read. And I was trapped in my own world and I couldn't sleep. And I was up all night and I was bouncing off the walls and I found people like I'm from like a small whitey Nick white town in Southwest Michigan. And so that isn't the world I wanted to live in, you know? I always say, speaking of comic books, this is my friend of mine and I who no longer live there. We were raised, we were born and, you know, and our parents nurtured us, but we were raised by Denny O'Neill. Yeah. Like he taught us how to be a person. Like, (laughs) you know, you read the like hard traveling heroes or, you know, whatever Denny did, Denny's run on Batman. And you're like, oh, right. He's just dealing with racism and sexism and homophobia Mm -hmm. right here. You know, like his green arrow is like this social, you know, he's the original social justice warrior. And I was like, yeah. You know, and I loved those like early Ali hothead. He would like get in a fight. It's when they finally started justifying, you know, it's one thing to put on a suit and, and fight crime. It's another to like, no, these folks actually want to fix a system. And there's a, there's a, there's a, a motivation there. And, and that's just such a great era to come up in. It, again, like on the Marvel side, you're looking at Chris Claremont making it, you know, it's about racism now. It's not just a yeah. bunch of X. And so like, uh, that's just such a phenomenal time to get socialized by that stuff. You know, it was. And you talk about like God loves man kills. Like yeah. the greatest sex men comic ever. And then, you know, and then now, like in now time, Bobby's out, you know, and yeah. I, I'm so glad they finally did that because it's not just about racism, but you always can say, oh, being X-Men is always about 
sexual sexuality. It's always about coming out. It's always about because when does it happen? It happens when you hit puberty. Yep. And so you start figuring yourself out and your powers come out and you're like, you know, especially because it's Bobby, he had to keep such a secret from his family, you know? So there's like such a cool thing. And like, I, I it's just brilliant. And, and the way that they, that Warren, when you think back through that lens, like the queer, when you apply queer theory to X-Men, you think about Warren and the way that his family was and how he had to, cause he's rich, white, handsome yeah. angel, you know, you think about it differently. So it's, it is, it was a good time to learn from that. And so I feel like I am who I am because of art, you know, not because yeah. of where I'm from. If I, if I, if I never, there's a lot of people who are still in the town where I'm from who are nothing like me, even though we had all the same life. But I do think, and this is what attracted me so much to your book, Walt, is that your argument is you even have a nature versus nurture thing about becoming a hero. But I felt like that, like you were like adding me. You're like, yeah. this is at the reader of this book while it's also about comic books. And so, like, what is it? So to, to get back in, not to get all Mark Marin and go, let's go way back. But I do, <laughs> I'm curious. So how did you find all of that? Because you said you got into Neil, which is like, you know, yeah. he's the most, I mean, with the endless, you know, with, with, yeah. you know, most for a lot of folks who are from a certain era, the first time you saw a transgendered person was in the Sandman comics. Yeah. Like you didn't understand it because that's not, it wasn't in culture and then you're like oh that's i actually know somebody like that that person's my friend you know and i i you know so that's so cool so how do you feel like because you said you got into comics you know around your teenage years and so you were do you feel that it changed your trajectory or did the comic books find you give you like inside your mind you were already thinking like you know i'm not this way i'm not this way i'm not this big C conservative person. I'm a person who accepts all people. And I, and then the comic books open that for you, or you read the comic books and were like, Oh, cool. I can be like this. What was the way for you? Do you think? What a fun question. I think that like, you know, I, the reason that I really wanted to write the book was because it just like, these things just kept on coming up. Uh, you know, I'm a Ooh. journalist and I, I would, I, I, you know, you interview and talk to a lot of people over the course of a job and like, I would be covering the pop culture industry and I'd be talking to people either who worked in it or like were, were researchers who worked around it. Um, and even just when I was covering other things, you would just strike conversations with folks and so often it would come back to a revelatory experience they had usually as a kid, sometimes as an adult, but some developmental period in their life where all of a sudden things made sense after they watched something. And that can be, uh, you know, I talked to people who, you know, uh, I talked to paleontologists who after seeing Jurassic Park were like, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to go, <laughs> I want I want to, I want to like, you know, paleontology is, uh, having talked to some of these folks, it, like if you actually look at the day to day of the job, it's approximately 90% camping. And then the rest of it takes place. Like, and, and so it just like- <laughs> it, 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 I want to be but, a like, paid camper. That's and, nice. And like, yeah. they, they just like found all of a sudden like, oh, here's a meaningful thing that I can do. And like, here's people that I admire showing me how it can be done. Uh, in the introduction of the book, I talked a little bit about how, um, you know, staying with Jurassic Park, like Ian Malcolm was kind of that for me. I was I was a kid who was pretty decent at math. Uh, I ended up pursuing math in college uh, that majored in applied math, concentrating on statistics. And then, you know, since kind of gone on to work in data journalism. But, you know, you look at all these kind of folks who, you know, they became a doctor because they came up watching ER or Grey's Anatomy, or at least that was their first revelation that, you know, not only can, can someone be a doctor and not only do doctors change lives, but you know, you, a, a woman can be a doctor and, and, and different uh, revelations about who can do what and, and the ability with which they can do that. Um, 
whether that's even just something as simple as like leadership uh, or whether that's something like a career or whether that's, you know, how one sees the world, like where they want to go, where they want to travel to, the kind of person that they want to become. And so I think that a lot of times it's less about, you know, is this the thing that made you who you are or were you always this person? I think a lot of the times it's just like, it, it, it you know, it, it allows you to try on a different life and it gives you an opportunity to see the world in a different way. And if you find that you prefer that point of view more than the one that you currently hold, it empowers you to kind of get there. I think that like, you know, Roger Ebert had this really compelling idea that I always come back to, which is that movies are empathy machines. And I think that, you know, comics are very much the same thing. Um, I, I can speak to that personally. Uh, and I think that any opportunity that you have to, become empathetic with somebody who's had a different life, a different experience or, or a different, um, you know, existence is just a, a, an opportunity for the better. Uh, and, and I think that inherently, like you were referring to, you know, oftentimes uh, that comic could have been the first time that you were introduced to a trans person. And, and I think that inherently people who consume a lot of media develop an inherent sense of empathy for other people and, and, and a more willingness to, um, you know, hear folks out and, and see a little bit about their lived experience. I, I could not agree more. It's funny because I was just like a couple of weeks ago, I recorded a friend of mine does a band bookstore also coming out in October. She's recording oh. it now because she's an actor and she's actually going to direct her first short film in October. So she's like, I got to record the band books this summer. So we just yeah. did. I, I was on her episode for this one summer, Mariko and Jillian Tamaki's This One Summer, which is a delightful, amazing graphic novel. Um, the fact that it's banned still is like, we spent half the time like I don't understand, but anyway, it, during that I did say I, I said I said books are empathy machines, and for me yeah. as a kid who I mean I watch movies and stuff, but it's like books were my people, books were my people, those are my friends, and uh, and you you get a chance to see the world, and um, and there's nothing there's nothing quite like it, and so I love that I love that you said that I didn't realize that was Roger Ebert who said it, who coined that term that makes me happy to know. Um, I, I I agree, and I think and I think and what you do. When I finished your book, I was like, okay, so somehow he's taken statistics, something I'm bad at as an English teacher, and they like <laughs> freaked me out. But you made them so accessible and you, you, um, you, but you also tied them to us. So you said, like, hey, here's why math is important and here's why it can prove things to you. And so you, you made math, which I mean, for people who are good at math, I, I'm not trying to say this isn't, you know, but it's like you made math like really emotionally resonant. So I thought that was really cool because it, it did hit, you're like, oh, I did feel this way. And this is the science, this is the math that proves yeah. it, as opposed to just be like, I feel that way. So it is. You're like, you feel that way. So it is proof. And I thought that was really cool to argue you like scientifically proved empathy with this book. And I think that was really genius. That means so much to hear. I think that a lot of times in my career, a very common thing that you'll find is that people have had a testy relationship with math in the past. And I think that it's just such a reliable tool. And, you know, I had a chance to work uh, with Heather Jones, who's a phenomenal graphic designer. And, you know, we worked together on, on, you know, gathering the data. And then she did such a great job at presenting them in charts and making it so visually compelling that you kind of forget that what you're looking at is kind of data at times. And, and that can scare the crap out of people. But in such capable hands, you know, oftentimes you'll you'll kind of get taken for the journey. And, and so that's like such a nice thing to hear because we were well, really, tell her, we tell really her, hard at that. Yeah. Tell her she's awesome because I do... I mean, I would get lost, like I said, when I'm in the second run through, like looking back at the graphs, but there'd be yeah. even times I would just like stare and like, I know I'm going to need to come back to this because I'm they're a little, so pretty. <laughs> they're so pretty, but also like they're 
as a teacher, I teach, I teach um, humanities and English at the college level. I'm like, oh my God, like this is such a cool thing as our, as we're trying to AR AI proof universities. One of the things that we're doing is moving from just written papers into more presentational type. Yeah. You know, things it's like the material is still there, but you have to say it verbally. You have to do some more presentations. You're not just a speech, but like a presentation. And so like some of your images, I'm like, well, fair use is 10%, but now I've got you here. So at the end, we'll talk about maybe if I can use some of the images and, and one of my to, to your point. So hundred <laughs> percent, uh, I'll just say this right now. You can use them. Not only can you use them, I'm planning. And again, we're talking a little bit ahead of time. So I yeah. haven't quite done it yet. Yeah, yeah. But the plan is to make as much of this data online as possible. Oh, exactly cool. for... Teachers, whether they're like, because again, you know, I, I I was a stats major uh, in college, and you'll always find that uh, it's it's just baseball statistics every damn time. And you know, as I as I've alluded to, I, I'm a, I'm a homosexual man, and therefore baseball statistics are not really my jive. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they're they're lovely to kind of illustrate, uh, uh, you know, very good. You can the nice thing about baseball is that like really you can show relationships and correlations very distinctly like home field advantage is the thing that you can do so you know why they do it but like i really would have loved to use data from x-men or um people's breath over time over the course of a film or um the the gsr the the galvanic skin response of someone who's watching jaws or any of that kind of stuff and i would have strongly preferred to, to 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 work with cool data like that um and so the hope is to really make this stuff as accessible as possible so yeah uh oh. for you so not 10 percent, 100 percent. fear not <laughs> oh thank you i appreciate that yeah well because it's like I, because i think my wife's a librarian right so yeah. like that's data too like everything you know oh, like yeah. everything is so organized and so together and we're always you know we're always trying to like say how do we how do you get to the truth how do you find the facts what are the things you know like when i'm trying to write a new class or do a new project or do something. I'm always like checking with her to make sure I've got drilled down on the data. And, you know, so I can also show my students, this is a way, but like, again, your book is such the perfect blend of this is an AI proof book, right? It's clearly written by a person. You've written it in sort of memoir form. And then you use not just data, but because you make it graphic data that is very unique. I think this is like the way to show somebody as teachers, like I could, you could do this as a professional development for other teachers and say, Hey, this is how we AI proof a class. We write like, well, and uh, you know, and this, and Heather, you said is your, is your, um, yes. Yeah. We do what Walt and Heather did and look at this, but also look at how engaging it is. And so, you know, for my students to see examples of this, to be like, you could just throw something up on a PowerPoint slide and it's like, dots or you could do this. And this isn't this way more interesting, isn't this way more engaging. And so, for me, you've really made this like I don't know. I mean, to me, this is going to be a runaway hit. I don't know how people. <laughs> I don't know how people can put it down. Honestly, if you're interested in art at all, which why would you pick it up? <laughs> you know what I mean. It says it right on yeah. the cover. If you're interested in pop culture in any way, shape, or form, I think it's appealing to all brains. And because you you did it in such a really smart interesting way so this is just so heartwarming again if i had word of mouth like this uh, <laughs> uh, uh it's just like uh, i mean again like that's so kind of you to say just because again like i'm a journalist i'm a writer for a living and a lot of folks are freaked out about ai and i think that like to your point like this was hard like this was a lot of work like this is not a thing that like again believe me i tried to automate some of this and i succeeded in some regards just because you know i'm a data journalist i'm handy with a python python script here or there but like you know, I think that like it's I put a lot of thought into it. And I think that the fact that it's you kind of consider it just AI proof in that regard, I think like that really justifies a lot of late nights. So it really does. Yeah. Well, it really does. Because when you think about it, like one of the things. So 
I'm teaching a class coming up this semester. It's called Justice and Peace. And so when I was designing it, what am I going to do? Like, oh, we could do this. We could do this. I was like, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm an English teacher. We're going to read Langston Hughes. We're going to read Arthur Miller. We're going to read Franz Kafka. We're going to read Joy Harjo. We're going to read. We're going to do literature stuff. And then we're going to talk about how it makes us feel and how, and then we're going to show, then we're going to read some nonfiction things in relationship to this. And then their big paper for the trial, Franz Kafka's The Trial, is it's called Stranger Than Fiction is the name of the paper. And they have to take, um, they have to do research on something from the last two years, shouldn't be hard to find, that seems illogical in the justice system. Or like find a moment when they were like believed somebody's guilty or somebody's innocent just because, and then do the analysis. So they have to tell like part story, part research part literary analysis. And I thought, well, if the, if an AI can do that, I am game over. I need to go back <laughs> to being a carpenter because I can't do like, I can't. So that's, but seeing this again, just gives me hope that there's like a way to tell a story in a really interesting way um, that is compelling and it's real. And you can tell there's a person there because you Walt, are in this book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know what I, I mean? That was yeah. the most, that's what makes it gr- Now, was there a pushback when you were writing it? Like, you know, like James Tinian, obviously you read James Tinian's books. You know, like when you read like something is killing the children, there's a little kid called James who's like struggling with his sexuality. And you're like, hmm, wonder who that's <laughs> supposed to be. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I see you that you're in this book, James. You just put yourself right in there. And, you know, I love that. Love that he did that. You know, we're in who we like. We are what we watch. We are what we write. We are, you know, we're these things. We're all variations on a theme. So, like, was there a pushback from from you, from editors when you're like, I'm going to do this statistic driven book about culture. And it's also going to be part memoir where they're like, "Mm, can you drop the memoir part? Or where that was that? That's funny. I have like, I didn't think about doing that in the course of it. But again, I think that like, that's just kind of how culture works where like, you're always telling on yourself in some regard, Mm. you're always revealing what you consume and, and you're always revealing things about yourself and your interests when you do this kind of stuff. I think like, again, like I am a journalist and I use, um, the, like the third person very much as like, that that's kind of your armor, right? Like the objective third person is a way that you are able to, you know, somewhat separate yourself from what you're reporting on. And then the course of like, whether it's the newsletter that I write Numlock or whether it's uh, just kind of journalism in general, I think that like, if you have an opportunity to reveal a little bit about yourself, it's much more powerful if you do kind of retain that like third person perspective and that kind of stuff. That being said, I think that such a fun thing about data journalism Again, like it scares the dickens out of people sometimes just because it can be intimidating. But I think that if you like really just explain what you're doing step by step and why you made these logical decisions, why like I built eye tracking goggles and then I took a few friends and then I made them watch the climaxes of various different Star Wars movies. And I'm going to then use that data to show you why these films are different and why there was a lot more tight direction on the ones that tend to get more favorable reviews and how really a lot of direction is just the ability of a of an individual auteur to steer your eyes around and and really direct your focus to where they want you to see and that's how you can quantify t- good and, and 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 you know uh talented direction that's like you know that step-by-step process all of a sudden makes more sense rather than if i just plop down here's a bunch of charts about star wars baby <laughs> like no it's, it's so, true yeah it was true and, it, and again it feels and again right obviously you're you're the the data is objective and it's there but like because you're there like you can tell there's jokes in this at one of my favorite like it's funny in a lot of places <laughs> not everybody gets to be the hulk 
<laughs> you know, yeah. like you you knew what to do and how to how to add the jokes and how to pause correctly. And I will be honest, you're using a lot of M dashes, which that is a writer's choice. As a as an English teacher who's trying to teach students punctuation, I'm anti-M dash in academic writing because I need you to know it's like Picasso didn't just show up and do, you know, an eyes on the side of the face. He had to know what a face looked like first before he yep. could do that. So you can't just try you're obviously a, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. You can use M dashes anyway. You like <laughs> and this is actually the most effective way to use them because you do it for effect. You know, like you're like hard break as opposed to I'm not sure if I'm supposed to use a parentheses here or if I want to do a semicolon. So I'm just going to do an M dash. Like you knew what you were doing. But I do think that is where your voice comes through is in the grammar. I know we're getting real deep into the grammar <laughs> weeds here. But I do think you knew exactly how to use them and and how to make them work perfectly without getting in the way. So again, to just nerd out ADHD cast, we talk about whatever we want. The M dash, tell me about how how and when you chose to use it was that an editorial thing or is that just instinctive to you now because you've been doing it for so long? This is a really good question. And I think that I'm going to- I can't to believe the... you just said, this is a really no, good question about M dashes. This is, this is fun because I've thought about this because I recognize that I use them quite a bit more than I ought to. And I think that the reason for that is again, um, the biggest issue that data journalism has is that people are intimidated by it. And I think that the best way that you can- reduce the intimidation and 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 make it more accessible is being functionally rather conversational. And I think that a lot of times people will try, like the biggest issue that I think some journalists have is that they try to prove that they went to college when they write, when realistically <laughs> the point of journalism is to reach a mass audience. And under my, like, you know, speaking directly, plainly, straightforwardly, and I would argue conversationally, um, so that folks hear a voice and folks know that they're talking to a person, even if they were able to do their journalism using data and a computer, but they're talking to a person, that can really kind of lower the temperature and, and make it so that there's an easier on-ramp for folks. And so as a result, I think I use a lot of M dashes because I really try to write like I talk and I try to talk like I'm having a conversation and and you know, speaking directly to folks and 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 really kind of, you know, not to like undermine the data, but really just kind of emphasize like, listen, like we're using this as a tool, stay with me, hold my hand, we'll be okay. And I think that if I use a lot of M dashes, it's to kind of crank up that conversational tone just so that people don't, it's not a textbook, man. It's not like, I'm not trying to to write a uh, an academic work here. I'm trying to reach folks who maybe had a relationship with media and want to understand a little bit better or perhaps come at it from the data side or perhaps don't come at it from the data side, but want to like, like you alluded to, I to really try to use data, not for the sake of doing it, but like as proof as to illustrate that this thing that you're feeling, this, this, uh, this relationship that this media has changed you or, or that you, that your life is different now than it was before you turned on this film or, or before this movie made a difference to you, that it is real. And the best way to make sure that people know that it's real is this objectivity that again, can be a little intimidating, but you know, hold my hand. We'll be fine. We'll come along for the ride. <laughs> no, and, I, and I like that too, because one of the things we teach in writing is synthesis, right? And so that's always the hardest part for people is that is everybody just says, I have like, again, I've got a feeling about something. I, you know, there ought to be a law, but okay. Why? <laughs> what is the reason for that? Not just oh, shake a fist. So, you know, but what you do, and so synthesis is hard for students. And again, so what it ends up doing is most people, their default is write report writing. Because report writing, 
is easy and yeah. boring, but it's easy. Here is data. Here are here are things in long, complicated paragraphs with long, complicated sentences with probably too many semicolons and <laughs> like use a period sometimes. It's okay. And then it's over. And when you've left, no, all of the information is there. You've written a really good report, but it doesn't stick. Yeah. Because it's not. So synthesis is taking the report and making it interesting and making it readable and using examples. So you've got an example and then use data. I always used to back. And again, it was easier because I'm old. It was easier when there was only three channels and I could use this as a way to explain people like Dateline. Yeah. Dateline is the ultimate synthesis, right? You like, cause you come in and you're like, are your car, our key is brakes going to kill you. And then they're like, <laughs> Steve Jacobson of Phoenix, Arizona. And they like set you up. There's a whole scary thing about his death ride through Phoenix, Arizona, where his brakes went out. And then they're like, okay, here's the reason all these brakes are bad is because Kia, they're, they're, they, you know, they're getting these, they're, they're being shipped from Korea because they're a Korean car company. And this is what's happening. And there's degradation and there's salt water, blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares. But if you think about Steve Jacobson and his break death breaks, then you're going to remember the whole story. So that synthesis, I always try to get people to understand it. But honestly, truly, your book is like, you said it's not a textbook, but I could use your book to teach people how to write using synthesis. Yeah. Because as you've said, you're making the statistics not scary, but the statistics are proving the point. And I think what you've shown here is regardless what topic you write about, it can be proven. And so when you set out your thesis of this, because you are a culture writer, but when you sat down to write this, was that like, was it almost like a challenge to yourself to say like, I'm going to show, I'm going to prove art saves. Like to me, your thesis is art saves. Like I believe art saves. I believe art's important. I believe everything is art. You buy a car, you build a building. It's art. Downtown Chicago is yeah. an architectural marvel. Like, you don't need to spend a dime in Chicago. Just go and look <laughs> up. It's unbelievable. Like the Wrigley building is next to this building is next to this building. And it makes no sense that they, they shouldn't be there, but they are. It's amazing. Right. So like that's art. All things are art, but people don't think we think art and we think like, oh, you know, you think Picasso. Okay, cool. But everything is art. So was that your plan was to prove like to use data to prove that art is just as valuable as, as, and again, your math. So the art is just as valuable as math. I, yeah, I love that because it, again, like this, it came about very originally. Like I was mentioning, like I would just interview a lot of people and it just kept on coming up how much pop culture had in some way manifested an important thing in their life. And I really kind of set out to really start researching this. You know, I went to, uh, you know, a, a ream of academic information and, and data and studies and I think that what was really exciting about it was that a lot of people were onto this. There's a lot of like, you know, actual science that goes on. The thing is, is that a lot of the science that I found that was the most compelling stuff was folks who weren't like media studies. They mm -hmm. were just researchers who dabbled in media occasionally. A very good example that I come to, it's one of the first chapters. It's one of the first things in the book about how your body changes. And, um, what we found was that, you know, there's one study that I wrote about that a group of researchers out of the Netherlands did. And these folks are doctors. They do medical research. They specifically study something called thrombosis, which is effectively clotting. And so thrombosis, if it's too far in one direction, you get things like hemophilia, where if you get a wound, it'll never clot. And that's a problem because that's a, it doesn't clot enough. In the other direction, strokes are caused by blood clots. And so figuring out the clotting system of the body is a really sophisticated question that a lot of medical research goes into, because realistically, it is a thing that kills 
fairly substantial amount of us. Um, and so these folks did a study, though. Uh, they were at a, uh, an academic retreat and they, you know, it's, it, they're European researchers. And so a lot of the folks have native tongues that aren't necessarily the one. And they realized they were talking about how uh, blood curdling as a thing that fear does is a is a word in German, it's a word in Swiss, it's a word in French, it's a word in English. And they're like, well, that's weird. Why is that? Does blood, this sensation that we have of our blood chilling and curdling and, and, and running thick, is that actually a thing that can, that, that happens when we're scared? And so to study that, they showed people horror movies and then okay. showed them not horror movies and then took blood samples before and after. And they measured basically the, uh, the level of a chemical that aids in coagulation. They find, you know, the body prepares itself for a wound when you watch horror movies that's one sensation that we have your blood literally gets prepared to to bleed if need be because if you know you're potentially in danger and so by actually they were able to tap into this but again these folks are not media researchers they're 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 blood researchers and so as a result when i was just kind of talking to all these different scientists and pulling in all these different studies you know, it, it wouldn't make sense for them to talk to each other because, you know, some folks study how the rainforest emits, uh, you know, uh, carbon dioxide and other volatile organic compounds. Some people study blood. Some people study, uh, you know, how your skin conducts electricity. These folks wouldn't have caused to talk to each other, but all of them did a study that pertains how media manifests in that. What happens when you're in a movie theater? Does the air actually change composition over the course of a film? And the answer is yes, it does. In very fascinating and more importantly, in repeatable ways. Does do horror movies make you uh, blood run cold? Yes, no, absolutely. Your blood actually prepares to bleed when you watch something spooky. Uh, it, you know, how are we able to actually track emotional valence over the course of a film? Well, galvanic skin response, one of the things that they're measuring in a, in a polygraph test, uh, is a really excellent way that you can track how engaged and 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 you know into something and, and emotionally volatile a film can actually be. And so I, I really loved it just because again it keeps on coming from a lot of different angles, and there are a lot of really exciting researchers who are you know dipping their toe in the water on some of this and, and the ability to actually just kind of compile it into one big argument of here's the very different ways that movies can affect your body and that doesn't even get into you know how they affect your mind how they affect society as a whole we can there's a lot of stuff in here about you know after 101 dalmatians come out all of a sudden dalmatians become one of the most popular dogs in america overnight yeah. uh, and, and so all the different ways that it kind of manifests in our society there have been a lot of folks who, who have done this and it was really just a a a thrill for me to be able to talk to a, a, a bunch of them because all of them were super down <laughs> and very excited and particularly proud of, of, of the work that they had done about this because you know, it's, it's pretty fun, you know? It is pretty fun. And I think it's, and again, I, as a person who has made a choice in life, you know, to, to be a writer myself and to be a teacher and to do things and to teach humanities, you know, I'm a humanities instructor, liberal arts and English and creative writing. And, you know, that's what I do. The stuff that, you know, there's only 12 majors, you know, everybody has to take English, but there's only 12 English majors, right? Everybody has mm -hmm. to take math, but there's only 12 math majors. You know, you were there. Yeah. Um, I was there. <laughs> you know, everybody else is taking these other, they take science, they take business, then there's us. Like everybody goes through our subjects, but everybody kind of hates them. And, um, you know, and it's a choice that you're making to try to justify that. And I just think your book does an amazing job of showing why the two things that we love, words and numbers, work and are important. And that in that place, that what we write about also matters, too. I think, like, this is clearly a love letter to uh, to, to the things you love, you know, loving the things you love, right? You, you, um, you know, like the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which was my favorite show of the last 10 years. It was <laughs> brilliant. It was like a love letter to musical theater, but it was like also, you know, I mean, Adam Schlesinger, um, one of my favorite all-time musicians, 
he just, he knew what he was doing, you know? And like, you listen to Rachel Bloom talk about, they would be like, Hey, we need this. And he'd be like, he'd go away. And he and Jack would go away. <laughs> like five minutes later, they would have, you know, we should definitely not have sex right now. Like in five minutes, they wrote that song. And there's like, because they get, but like, imagine the joy on that set and the, and the joy that that show continues to bring and the conversation in that silly show, silly show. But it's like so important about like mental health and being mentally well while also making fun of the crazy ex-girlfriend trope. And it's like so smart. And so it's a place where art can save us. Where like, I assume somebody has seen crazy ex-girlfriend and said like, oh, it's okay to be a theater nerd or, oh, it's okay. Like I need help. Like being on medication, there's a song called, you know, medication is so not a big deal. Like you're like, yep. Yeah. That's a, and so like, I love that show for all those reasons because art does matter. And you've said, literally scientifically i can prove that art matters to you <laughs> whether it's just like and it maybe it's just getting the dalmatian but you know like have you're lonely and now you got a dog and now you're not lonely you know whatever it is or or watching this movie over and over like you talk about the kids and how they watch movies over and over and how but we as adults there's still movies like what's the movie you've seen the most well oh god um probably Either Jurassic Park or Empire Strikes Back, you know? Right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And 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 you could probably act them both out. Yeah. But you'll no, watch no. them and it'll like you'll make a choice to be like, I'm gonna have to watch Empire today. And, <laughs> and you don't need to, but you do because there's like some there's something soothing and you and you address that with little kids. But I think but like for me, because I'm a lot more twisted than you, the movie I've seen most in the world is Heathers. So I don't know what oh, that wow. says <laughs> about me. Um but I mean I love satire. And, yeah. you know, and, and that's the team that also gave us Hudson Hawk, which is another movie that I love that everybody hates. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like there was something about Heather's again, growing up where I grew up to be like, well, this is one way out and I don't want to be a serial killer to get out of here. But also like just acknowledging the problem, like that was the whole yeah. point of Heather's is acknowledging that this is not a good way to live. Like this is unhealthy. <laughs> The feelings that you're feeling are real. And Correct. oftentimes there aren't there isn't a person in your life who will tell you that, but there are you're able to get that message from someone else who perhaps, you know, lives in a very different city or even a different century at that. Like this kind of stuff that it, it it endures for a reason. And I think that there's there's a lot of power in that. And so I don't know. I, I was very drawn to this as a data journalist. I was like, so I worked at 538 for like five years as their pop culture guy. And there aren't a lot of folks who are in that intersection of pop culture and data. Uh, and I was always- but you guys bit... over at 538 definitely made statistics sexy as hell. Good, good hey. on you and Nate. I mean, I'm seriously, I can't, yeah. like when he came up with, the, when you guys made that happen, I'm sure people were like, nobody's going to go here. And then you guys are like the biggest website in the world. That's amazing. Job, was, I, I had a phenomenal run and, and again Nate's, Nate's a friend at this point it, yeah. we haven't worked together in a little while but uh he was uh he's kind enough to he read the book he, he really enjoyed it and I was just very proud of the stuff that we did there but I think that like one of the things that I was always very surprised about was like so you know we would t 538 at the time now it's I believe strictly politics uh but at the mm. time there was economics there was sports there was politics there was pop culture and all that kind of stuff and one thing that was really fun about it was like each desk, if you ask them, who would you say your competitors are and who is the is the likeliest to scoop you and do that? Each of them has a different answer, right? Like the wow. economics team would say maybe the journal or, or maybe the econ desk at the Times. The sports desk would say, well, fan graphs and any of the kind of sabermetric stuff. Politics, you're talking about a kind of a handful of blogs that could really kind of do the work that we were doing there. But like with pop culture at the time in particular, I was like, the best part about this beat 
is that the person who's going to scoop me is a college student who has more time on their hands than I do and really loves a thing. And they're able to come out with, <laughs> I watched every episode of Friends and here's this data thing on it. And like, it was just so like, it just felt so organic in a way that sometimes this other stuff isn't. And, and that was always stuck with me because I do really think that that there's something very special about pop, pop culture and something very special about movies that really just like people love it more than they let on. And there isn't enough serious attention paid to that because it is, you know, like television rots your brain, television wastes your life, all this kind of, but whereas I think that like it, we've never really ascribed it the meaning that it really deserves it, it, in a manner that I think is fitting for it. And I think that there's been some reevaluation of some of that, but I think it took, you know, like the golden age of television, quote unquote, like it took a bit of a gentrification of of the craft to actually remember like oh no sitcoms mean stuff to us they show us what families can look like they show us how we navigate workplaces they they are uh the, the temperature that we take on changing and evolving social mores uh oh in a way God. that yeah. yeah sitcoms are so far i mean when you think about all in the family and the jeffersons right when you mm-hmm. think about those two shows norman mailer in general whatever you know like yeah. when you think about like when you think about those shows in particular and how they showed us a way to be, they showed us the past and they showed us the future in the same show, you know, the same two shows, they're spinoffs of each other. Yeah. It is pretty fascinating. And, you know, to be like, Oh, that's just a silly show about a grumpy old racist. Well, is it just that? Is it just that? Right. Yeah. My fiance's (laughs) favorite show uh, besides friends is 30 rock. And I love 30 rock because the thing that like, uh, she's talked a little bit about it, but if you look at it, it is a modern update to Mary Tyler Moore. If sure. you look at the Jack character and you it, it, basically each of the elements in that television show have a direct inspiration in Mary Tyler Moore. And I love that because it's like, you know, here's how, how does it, what does it mean and how did it evolve changing social mores of like, you know, working in a creative office and that kind of thing for, uh, you know, whether it's women in the workplace, uh, whether it's, you know, just how these different organizational structures work and how that's evolved over time. And, and so, I, I don't know, I always like, I had a lot of affection in particular for sitcoms. And I write a little bit about it in the book, basically about how you can kind of track, you know, how we view our families and how we view our societies. But one thing that I loved about it was that, you know, if you looked at the 60s, a ton of, in 50s and 60s, a ton of uh sitcoms took place on military bases and now you're just like well that's not a genre that we do but if you remember like at the time like you know people had served in world war ii together and that was a a common bonding experience that you know now if you looked at what kind of sitcoms are reflecting you know a show that i I, like that i loved uh, about how it reflected society was like oh superstore what a good idea for a show where do where do folks actually meet what is an intersection of various different social classes and people that might come together for a reason uh in a way that perhaps like a show about a white collar workplace couldn't show uh i just really dug how you know these things reveal a lot more i think than we necessarily give them credit for uh and the other one that i wrote about a little bit on that front was heist movies uh which are my favorite kind of of movie uh i i have a like uh, a bunch in the in the book about heists because I think that heists are a very interesting inversion. Like the first thing that we teach kids is don't steal, don't take other people's stuff, um, share that kind of stuff. And the thing that heist movies do is that they are all of them a violation of that rule. We inherently like we are like the, the person who is in a, the protagonist of a heist movie is doing something fundamentally wrong, always illegal, always like they're, they're stealing something. But we keep making them and we keep falling in love with them because heist movies are a societal critique 
they are like a way that you a society is able to like evaluate who has wealth and who ought to have wealth and the people who are the protagonist of a heist movie are attempting to mediate that um if you looked at oceans 11 uh in the first one with frank sinatra they are former gis who are attempting to get their slice of the pie uh because they feel like you know their skills haven't necessarily been rewarded if you looked at the new oceans 11 it's folks who have been rendered obsolete uh, by or overlooked, or overlooked, or overlooked, uh, obsolete, overlooked, irrelevant by this new form of capital that who can compete with that? And that's how they're able to win you over because they're able to illustrate. You know, it's not just we're stealing. You know, two hundred twenty-one million dollars from the basement of a casino. It's this is the moral thing to do. It is outrageous that somebody managed to accumulate $220 million in the casino the way in the, in the manner in which he did. And it is righteous that we are doing this. And, and if you like look at heist movies, they're just such a great way to reflect on, you know, why do we empathize with the person who's stealing stuff? And the answer is, is like, well, they're stealing stuff from a society that's wrong. And, and here's why we're able to like these capable people and, and like, it's a reflection of work. It's a reflection of social structures. And I just love how, like, you know, we uh, we don't give that enough credit, I think. I think that, you know, we, they're just, like, uh, people dismiss them, uh, you know, whether it's movies, whether it's television, all this kind of stuff is, you know, things, something that you do to pass the time. But I think that that is naive. Uh, it, it, that is, uh, it undermines the power of these things. And, and I wanted to write a book that kind of illustrated some of that power. And you did. And first of all, as people are throwing their phones or devices, Norman... Lear, not Norman Mailer. Wrong, different Norman. <laughs> I said Norman Mailer, and I was like, not the Executioner song guy. No, no. Although, <laughs> to be fair, Norman Mailer, you can read and watch Norman Mailer, and you can have a social commentary in there. I'm not pretending Norman Mailer doesn't have anything <laughs> interesting to say. It may not be what I want to say, um, but it definitely has Charles <laughs> Bronson in it. Okay, sorry. Norman yeah. Lear, not Norman Mailer. Although, to be fair, I've watched a lot of Norman Mailer, Mailer <laughs> stuff, too. So, um, everything that you said there is spectacular because what you said and, th- and i think that'll be a great place for us to start to conclude i mean because i could just do this all day and <laughs> we need people to read the book we don't want to give everything yes. away um because but you mentioned earlier about the tv rotting your brain and you have like one the way that you again the comic book brain that you have and that i have you break it up like sequential art in times where you'll have like yeah. a cutaway it'll be like not just images but you'll just be like here's a thing that's out of place you have to decide how to read it like an inlay you're reading it and you're reading the story and you're like there's this here and your brain comic book readers know how to parse that and how to stop and finish this and come back or to know i see it i need to finish this sentence i need to finish the section and come back to it when I use comic books in class, people who've never read comic books think of them as low art freak out. They realize they don't know how to read it. Yeah. You know, and so I just totally. I like, I, but anyway, one of your things is about too much screen time. And ultimately you're like, well, we jury's still out. We don't know. But ultimately to me, what you just said is lovely. I love somebody who says a heist movie has value. I mean, yeah. I, I think it does. I think all art has value. Even if, if, I mean, yes, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying Art, art and pornography, right? You don't know what it is, but you know it when you see it, that kind of thing. Like, I mean, there's <laughs> yeah. definitely some forms of art that some people think are art that I'm not into. And they don't have value for me, but I wouldn't say don't make it and don't watch it. I would just be like, I don't want to watch your cannibal holocausts, right? I'm not going to watch that. Although that's a movie and I know it's not real. It's like a fake documentary. Didn't watch it, didn't care, but I get there's probably, I've heard people yeah. talk about it. I'm sure there's something of merit there. But I think the thing about TV rot your brains and screens rot your brain 
isn't, doesn't it all come down to, Walt, isn't the answer that it's not that you watch it, it's that what you do after you're done watching it? Like if you watch TV and says something, you plop a kid in front of a TV for eight hours a day and you never ask him what he thought about what he watched. Yeah. What good does it do? There's no conversation to be had there. And it's it's watching it and then talking about it afterwards, whether it's just with one person or whether it's with you get to, you know, millions of people with your books and you're going to go. And, and and I can't wait to when I see you, you're going to be on <laughs> stuff. You're going to I guarantee I hope I hope I scoop Terry Gross that I assume you're going <laughs> to do. I mean, that's the dream for me. Right. Like the dream. I write novels and stuff. And the dream one day is like I get to be on Fresh Air. They're like. Yeah. Terry Gross is a queen. I assume you'll be on. This is like a book that was written for you to be interviewed by Terry Gross. And I, I listen to Fresh Air every day. So I fingers crossed. Knock on wood. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Terry, Terry Gross, we're making this happen. Anyway, because that's what she does, right? She says art matters. She makes you have a conversation. And when you're on there and you're listening, and hundreds of millions of people around the world are listening, that's it. So to me, that's your argument, right? You're arguing like, TV doesn't rot your brains. It's what you do after you consume the art. Like if you just stare at, I keep coming back to Picasso. If you just stare at yeah. Guernica all day long and then don't talk to anybody about it, what good did it do? Like artists don't make any things. Artists, I mean, if you write like Salinger wrote all their stories and kept them in a drawer, that was different. Yeah. Like he didn't want the world to see them. And now his kids who hated them are going to give them to us. Thank you, Salinger children. I'm here for them. But <laughs> He didn't want you to have a conversation with them, but that is ultimately what it comes down to. And that's what I think your book is saying is that consume the art and then find somebody to talk to about it. Like engage, let the art change your life. These people, they're talking about office politics. I mean, Mary Tyler Moore, like when they made the Mary Tyler Moore show, everybody was worried. They're like, everybody's going to think that Lori and Rob broke up. Yeah. And they're like, that's why they called it the Mary Tyler Moore show. They went out of their way because they didn't want people to think that, you know, she and Dick Van Dyke got in a fight because people, yeah. of course, you know, and I love the Dick Van Dyke show. I think it's one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. But I, Mary Tyler Moore is is a better show. Yeah. Right. No, I, I agree of, with that. Yeah. Yeah. And then Rhoda. Yeah. Rhoda was an ex. I mean, we'll talk about it. We, a all, great we all stand on the shoulders of giants. That's that's three. We do. That's totally true. But those shows like you can even go back and look at those like mostly old white dudes making TV. There's still something interesting to discuss. Yes. Right. And so if you don't talk about it, that's the thing, right? The, the, be- the art saves us when we share it. Yeah, I could not agree more. Uh, I think that it is really important to recognize that, again, it's just like, I, 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 if, there's a, if there's a thing that I'd exhort people to do, it's like, don't, like, there's no such thing as like a guilty pleasure when it comes to this ah! stuff. It's like literally just, it, it, you like the things that you like, engage with the things that you believe in. I think that one of the most remarkable and exciting fi- findings that I really enjoyed from this was the the, the last chapter of the book is about uh, kind of like creativity and what making art does to folks. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's an element to that. I, I talk about a couple different things. Uh, one of them is fan fiction. Uh, and the thing that I found when researching fan fiction, there's some outstanding research on this, particularly out of uh, a pair of researchers in the University of Washington, if memory serves, that, you know, fan fiction is phenomenal because it's, you don't need to assign people to write it. They find it themselves. They engage with it because they love these characters and they like reading it. But more importantly, they found that not only is this a like a pleasurable thing that people do to have fun and, and blow off steam and, and you know make the characters that they want to kiss kiss but at the same time <laughs> yes, it is true. such a good like the the writing talents of the people who write it 
just begin to skyrocket over the course of of doing it because they get feedback, they get positive reinforcement. It just so often comes down to amount of words written when it comes to ability to write. And they find basically they they measured feedback over time against the uh, uh, something called MTLD, uh, which is basically a, a designation of how uh, you know accomplished a person's writing is based on the diversity of words and whatnot. But they they found functionally a linear relationship between the amount of things that you're writing, the amount of feedback that you're getting, the engagement that you're doing, and, and how much better you are getting writing. And this is over fan fiction, which is something that I think is is somewhat dismissed uh, in, in you know at the very least in you know, literary society, but at the same time, it, it, it's just such a good thing for folks. And, and and I think that, you know, like I was saying earlier, like, you know, don't necessarily, like, there's no guilty pleasure here. Don't be ashamed of the things that you consume. If they if they bring you joy and they, they expand your world and, and you let it affect you, it is, there's something worthy in there. And so, I don't know, I, I really... Uh, I loved writing this book. I loved reporting it. I I kept on talking to people who were so excited uh, in every conversation that I had, uh, and I I hope that people dig it. I think that they're going to enjoy it. Uh, it's been it was a real it was a real pleasure to write, and uh, and and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. It's a pleasure to read. That's on page two hundred two for people following along. That's where that <laughs> chart is. Yeah. It's funny, and then because my my novel series that, that the first one just came out, it's I'm retelling. Oh, congratulations! Uh, the, the, thank you. Uh, it's uh, I'm doing the six Jane Austen novels, but in a shared universe, like they Ooh. know each other. It's set now, so they're all I've I've aged them up, so it's like young adult, new adult, you know, kind Ooh, of. So I, I love that. Man, started with Mansfield Park, the most misunderstood of them all, yeah. and um, it takes place at Mansfield College. But anyway, so it's like huh. so it's fun. For me, because it is, you know, it's essentially I got I wrote it. Nobody asked me to do it. My publisher was like, "Cool." I'm like, it, I pitched it to them as a series. They bought it as a series. The second book's with the editor right now, and it's like essentially just published fan fiction, right? It's me yeah. retelling Jane Austen's book. So like reading your thing about that because it is still, it is a skill. And the difference is, is because copyright. Like you do the whole thing about gatekeepers, and I'm against gatekeepers. I mean, I do want people to get money. I don't yeah. want you to be able to steal things from people. But I do think fan fiction writers. In, aren't trying to make money. No. They're just trying to to share love and they're and it's what we all do. You finish a movie, you finish a show, whatever, and then you talk to people like what do you think happens next? Like that's such a fun thing yeah. to talk about. What happens next? And that's or you know like when when you're like when they cancel Legends of Tomorrow, Crime Against Humanity, it ends with the cliffhanger. So now we just get to decide what they're going to do and that is sad that we don't get to see that the artists didn't get to keep making their show, but also we can decide. So it's okay, you know, yeah. that it's out there. A friend of mine, Ivan Hernandez, uh, he, he has a podcast um, called Boars Gore and Swords. And he wrote a short story that still sticks with me to this day after Disney decanonized all the Star Wars stuff. Oh, sure. And, and like, uh, you know, you, you should check it out. Um, I will. I, I don't recall the name of the story. I'll send it to you perhaps if you if you want to link it just because I, I, I really, yes, I, dig, I, I love Ivan and I dig his work a lot. Um, but it, uh, it basically just kind of implied, like, listen, like, this isn't them destroying a universe. This is them giving it to you. You can live in that expanded universe. You write that, like, and, and I think that like people like, like copyright is a law against, you know, uh, making money off of somebody else's stuff. You're allowed to do whatever the hell you want, man. Correct. Like, exactly. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. I, I feel like people should feel a little bit more free uh, to, to do that kind of stuff. And, and cause again, like the data in the research shows that this is just good stuff. It's good to engage with things that you love. It's good to write. It's good to, even if it's just for its own sake, like you, you will live a, a happier and more developed life if you do this kind of stuff. And so, I don't know. I try not to be prescriptivist about it. I was like, you know, the title of the book is you are what you watch. And obviously that is a comparison to you are what you eat. And like, I really, 
really didn't want to write a diet book. Uh, I didn't want to write a like eat this, don't eat that, watch this, don't watch that. If I like, uh, when I was talking to my editor about it, I was like, this is not a diet book. This is a recipe book. It is a way for you to kind of enjoy like like and understand and, and pull apart and recognize some of the ingredients are, that are in the thing that you love and uh and yeah so i mean like i don't know this, this book came from a, a place of love i really enjoy talking like again i'm a journalist and so <laughs> i'm gonna do the journalistic thing where you know you, you always defer to your sources as being the, the the source of this information and i talk to so many brilliant cool people who do either fascinating research or live an exceedingly cool life uh or, or just really make things that bring people a lot of joy and uh and i don't know uh, i hope folks like it yeah it's available wherever books are sold as i believe yes. the line that people yes that's what you're saying they tell you, you to say. ten, 10 page bibliography no joke yeah okay. and uh, and that's only the stuff that is like directly cited i had a ton of stuff that was like inspired by that i'm also i believe going to put up online somewhere but nice. uh yeah i mean like this uh, look at it's it's an audio medium so i don't know why i'm gesturing yeah. but like this entire shelf of books is just stuff that went into that uh so like it's amazing yeah, it, it's it, it such a, a yeah. It, it's I'm just honored that you said yes. Um, thanks for thanks for letting me meet you and talk about this. It's a love letter to art. It, that last chapter really moved me a lot. And it was like, I already knew that I was in love with it halfway through the book. Like I said, by the time I got to the end, I was like, I'm just going to send him an email. And all he can say is, nah, I don't know. That's not a thing. I Thank you do. for sending it again. Like it, 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 you are one of the first conversations I'm having with someone outside of my friend group about this book. Nice. The, the, like, you know, the unsolicited praise, like it meant a great deal to me. So it thank you for saying that. Fan, well, I look, it's easy to praise because it's delight. And I feel like we need to do that more. Like this is also part of the conversation is the cool thing. I mean, the internet is a toxic hellscape sometimes, yeah. but also the cool thing about the internet is it allows this, the world is smaller in a real cool way. And like, you know, I did a friend of on, on here at Indie Comics Spotlight. We did uh, one of Joe Hill's Hill House books. Yeah. Um, we did the one that was like his own version of a slasher and it was fun. And yeah. there's this whole thing that goes through the through the comic where the clocks are all stuck at the same time. So we like, Paul and I spent like 10 minutes on the clocks. Clocks, clocks, yeah. clocks. Paul sends it out when the show comes out. He This is when he, you know, Twitter was not, I mean, I've been off Twitter for a long time, but Paul sent it out on Twitter and he's like, hey, blah, blah, blah. Clocks, Joe Hill, listen to the show. And wrote back, he's like, guys, that was just a goof. That wasn't a thing. But I love that you talked about it for 10 minutes. So it's like, yeah, this is the world we live in where Joe Hill responded to us about us loving his art. And so all you can do is take the risk. You could have said, no, my feelings wouldn't have been hurt. But it's just an honor to talk about art with somebody who loves art. I I appreciate it. I, I view the world the same way. I always try to say, like, if I if I like something, I always try to say nice things about it on the internet. It's funny that you mentioned Joe Hill. I just bought Lock and Key. Oh, uh, sure. That's a good comic. We yeah, didn't even talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, He's I know ID, IDW has had some financial troubles, it seemed, and I wanted to bag the hard copy just in case things got weird. But um, yeah, he's a very good writer. I, I enjoy his work quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And I know his move into the comic space. The Hill House comics, there, it's a DC line. It's called uh-huh. Hill House. Um, it's, I would I would say read those. In the back of them all, it's like a love letter to Alan Moore, where the yeah. back of every one of them is a pirate story. And so you got to read all the Hill House comics to get the connected pirate story. But if you don't <laughs> read that, it's also okay. They're all very good. It's it's really interesting stuff. Anyway, Walt, you're, you're numlock. Tell people how to subscribe to that. First of all, again, thank you again. This has just been a – I said to my wife, I'm like, I'm going to go talk to a Pulitzer Prize winner. She's like, <laughs> it's crazy. I'm like, yay. Like, really? I mean, so – Eisner winner now. I've had Kelly Sudaconic on here. Ooh. I've had now and Cullen Bunn. Walt, look Very at you. Cool. Great, great company. Cullen Bunn, Kelly Sudaconic, Walt Hickey. Here we are. Tell everybody how they can get a hold of Numlock, what it is, where they can find you. Do we know what day in October this comes out? Because it just says October. We do know what day. 
We do so say again. that too. Yes. So the book is out October 24th, 2023. Okay. Uh, it is called You Are What You Watch. It is about how movies and TV affect everything. If you enjoyed any part of this conversation, you will probably like this book. Uh, 100%. Once, uh, it is extremely visual. Again, like I had the chance to work with an incredibly talented graphic designer in, in, in Helen Jones on this. Uh, we worked to make some really cool charts and, and things that I think that people are going to enjoy. Uh, it is available wherever books are sold. Uh, I don't know precisely when this is coming out, but you can pre-order it if it's not October 24th yet. And if it is October 24th, you can buy I'm it. I'm going to put it out very close to that. I'm going to get it out as close as I can so that it's maybe a few days before. I, I haven't looked sure. at it. That's my mother's birthday. I should know what uh, what day <laughs> of the week it is. But like my show comes out on Thursday. So terrific. Um, yeah. So it'll be out. This will be out. Well, let's put it out on the 19th. So it'll be just when a few it, days. Yeah. October perfect. 19th is where it is now. Reorder that book. It, it, it really helps in the sales numbers. Uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, I also, I write a newsletter that you were alluding to called Numlock. Uh, Numlock, I started it. Uh, I, I left 538 to start it. I was doing the daily morning newsletter and it is all about cool numbers in the news. And like, uh, you know, we talked a bunch earlier about how I feel by being conversational and, and down to earth, you can kind of uh, take some of the intimidation away from numbers. That's what the newsletter is all about. It's a fun morning read all about, you know, cool stories that you might not see if you're only reading the major headlines, uh, but really exciting, fun stuff in science and culture and entertainment and uh, just, you know, worldwide news that isn't just, you know, the politics stuff that kind of tends to get the A-heads these days. So. And I'm a subscriber and it's a fun. It's nice to get that every morning. You're like, you, you, my two, the two that I get every morning. Are you and historian Heather Cox Richardson, Letter from an American? She's and, brilliant. And lo- she's one of the like most successful. Like, she's amazing. I'm very fond of her work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Her, her and Joanne Freeman's podcast is a, like a, I never miss it. I love their, it's called Now and Then. It's spectacular. But yeah, um, because they're just like two of the smartest people sitting around. Oh, yeah. out, And you're like, uh, and they tell stories. And it's delightful. So every morning, you and Heather Cox Richardson write in my email. So thank you. <laughs> For that, you just give it away for free. Yeah, I do. Yeah, there's a subscription option that you gets you a cool Sunday edition. But yeah, I, I, I you know, this is a, it's it's a labor of love. Uh, it's you know, it's a good business. I'm not gonna lie, I've, I've had a great time with it, and uh, I love doing it. So if if folks have any interest in in that, uh, it's called Numlock, like the key on the keyboard, and you can find it at numlock.com. Yeah, yeah, and I have done that. So this is it, everybody. So we're gonna now one last question. Uh, sure. If there's a link, um, I'm a music guy. I'm always listening to music when I write. Is there a soundtrack for you? Are what like? Is there music we should? Is if you've got a playlist I can include or anything you want? I will like, send you. A, so there's a there's like I have like three modes. One of which is I have a playlist called Songs to Grind to. Uh, it is just whatever I'm listening to now. It's like 400 songs long. But like if you go along, it's all kind of like up tempo, good beats, things like that. I will send you that playlist. Yeah, feel free to include it. We will. Uh, you can, we'll, we will just see what I'm listening to at the bottom at any time. I've been doing maintaining this for years. Uh, when I write and do math, sometimes I will put on a playlist that I have of Vitamin String Quartet, just because no lyrics. It, basically, they're a string quartet that covers pop songs. I have and, some uh, of them. I'll play some on the way out because I, sure. I I bought it through a Humble Bundle, so I own. It, yeah, so use it. All right, we'll play Lovely. some of them on the way out. And nice. then, uh, and then my favorite band is the Mountain Goats, and I listen nice. to all their stuff okay. all the time. So fantastic. Yeah, but, so any okay. of those three tunes, we'll you, play some of the bottom of string quartet. That's <laughs> amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. I, music matters to me. Yeah. All of my books have specific soundtracks, like the, totally. this. Yeah, so I get it. All right, my favorite. Uh, not to talk too much about it, but my no. favorite thing that I see that is one way that I get a ton of new music discovery is whenever a comic book artists or writers publish the playlist to the characters that they're writing, which is just a thing that I think some people do it, but whenever they publish it again, not to go back to our favorite guy, Kieran yeah. Gillen does it. Uh, I've, I've discovered so much cool, new, exciting music from that. 
the most recent one that I discovered was uh, Gabriel Piccolo, who does the art for Teen Titans these days, uh, published uh, his like themes uh, playlist for each of those characters. Nice. Uh, and I, I love those characters. And so uh, that's uh, that's my favorite way to discover stuff. So yeah, I am a huge fan of, of artists and, and writers sharing their stuff. So well, I, it's be... funny. I have those on my website oh, yeah. for my books. Each book has its own soundtrack. So the first one, the one that's out now, she listens to like 80s and 90s classic rock. Yeah. It's like the only way she can communicate with her dad is through the music he likes. So there's a lot of like Van Halen and Tesla. Tesla is her favorite band, um, a band that nobody likes but me and the character <laughs> that I've created. And then the second one, um, you just kind of find out what it is. So that character kind of likes all kinds of things. There's a lot of Matt Nathanson on there, a lot of like weird stuff in the new one, which is my retelling of Pride and Prejudice. It takes place in the 80s. So, so far, it's like a, a lot of, you know, R.E.M. and, you yeah. know, um, stuff like that so it's a lot of fun so i am doing that though so that's i'm glad to hear that that is useful i i'm making playlists for each of them yeah I think it's almost as if the things that you consume affect the thing that you do what crazy <laughs> i wonder if someone should write a book about that <laughs> amazing all right well we're listening to those playlists we'll hear that on the way out thank you again Walt. i appreciate it thank you for having me this was a blast of course. we'll see everybody next time